Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine, imagine a girl, a girl... 13 years old, arriving in the court of the Netherlands. And she was lucky, of course she was lucky. She was coming to this amazing place of culture and luxury where the pictures on the wall had names like the Arnold Feeney portrait even. But at the same time, maybe no journey in her life, even the last one, would be more scary than this because she was just 12, 13 years old. She'd been taken away from her home in the Weald of Kent and handed to a stranger to make the rare journey across the sea. And of course, she'd been taken from Heber Castle because the girl's name was Anne Boleyn. And the lessons that she would learn in her European education would change the course of British history. She'd come to the court of Margaret of Austria, who was ruling the Netherlands as regent on behalf of her young, her underage nephew, the future Charles V. And the point for me about this book was that the 16th century saw an absolute explosion of female rule. Large tracts of Europe at one time or another were in the hands of either a female regent uh, ruling on behalf of someone else or actually a queen regnant. I mean, it's odd, it's interesting. The title of my book, Game of Queens, well, of course, any resemblance to a certain well-known television series is not remotely coincidental, sorry. But it also refers to the fact that it was in the realm and during the reign of the most famous of what the first of these women, Isabella of Castile, that the queen in the game of chess took on the powers we, we, we know today. Before this, the queen had been a piece pretty much like today's pawn, able only to move one square at a time. Now suddenly she becomes the most powerful piece on the board. Coincidence? Maybe. The other point for me was that these women, this network of regents and regnants, they had connections with each other. They were mothers and daughters, mentors and protégés, allies, sometimes even across, you know, across the, the boundaries, against the interests even 
of the countries where they were living. And they, they run, oh, you know, you can, you can see, you can imagine lines of power passing from Isabella of Castile to her daughter, Catherine of Aragon, and on to her daughter, Mary Tudor. From the French regent, Anne de Beaujeu, who NB actually wrote a manual of instruction for powerful women, on to her ward, Louise of Savoy, to Louise's daughter, Marguerite of Navarre, and on to her daughter, Jeanne d'Albret. So it really was, you know, this kind of network. The other thing we need to remember, maybe, is that, well, we're talking here, we're talking, I mean, sorry about the confusion, just prepare to be baffled. We're talking 16 protagonists, five territories, and a century's worth of history. But, of course, the big power struggle of the age was the battle in Europe between the Habsburg territories and France. The Habsburg territories, you know, of course, early in the 16th century, they came to be joined under the same man, Charles V, uh, most of Spain, um, the Spanish Netherlands, large the Holy Roman Empire, off to the, off to the, the east even until he passed, you know, control of that over to his brother Ferdinand, and bit, you know, chunks of Italy as well. So it was them against France and against the independent French kingdoms, places like Navarre, small but strategically important. And England, of course, Scotland too in some ways, had the enviable but edgy position of being able to act as a kind of balancing act between the two. But the other thing we need to remember is that if you, in the 16th century you wanted to take over Europe, you had two ways of doing it. One was to get an army, the other was to get your sister, daughter, even widowed mother at a pinch, and an engagement ring. So I guess that's why, that's why we really can see that these women across the country boundaries did continue to make their own alliances because you know they really were they were being traded off for the advantage of their family often to a country which you know until very recently had been at enmity with the one where they grew up trouble with that of course is the alliance often didn't last and then you got the enmity all over again often you saw these women stranded, if you like. And um, the ultimate example to me is, is, is Margaret Tudor, Henry VIII's elder sister, who was married young to the King of Scotland. And of course, Scotland and England, you know, were forever at, at, at enmity, at war. To cement an alliance, fairly shortly into the marriage, when her son was only a, a, a tiny baby, uh, her, her husband, James, King of Scotland, was killed at the Battle of Flodden by the troops of her brother, Henry VIII. So she was left trying to run Scotland on behalf of her baby son with a bit of help from her brother, who, however, had just killed her husband. I mean, where do you square your, loyal your loyalties on that one? So a game of queens was often a complex one. 
So if we've got this game of queens, we've got this web of women, if you like, seeing for graphic one, if you're clicking on, on any kind of link here, because believe me, you know, you need the visuals. It's, so, it's a bit complicated for anyone, me included, to hold in their heads. But if you do look at this all-female family tree, if you like, for me, two women in particular stand out, a mentor and a protege. The protege is a household name. Anne Boleyn. But the mentor is far less well known than I feel she should be, at least in the English-speaking countries, because that was almost the other point about writing this book, that we, by England, America, the English-speaking world, has always been rotten on non-English-speaking history. It's kind of, if it doesn't speak English, we don't want to know about it. So, and that, that of course, isn't the way they actually felt in the 16th century. A lot, of, certainly the first part of it, a lot of these women would have been far more international than we are today. So, the mentor's name was Margaret of Austria. And to me, she is, she is the, she's the standout, if I'm honest. You, one shouldn't play favourites in writing this kind of book. But okay, I do. And Margaret's it for me. Anne de Beaujeu, the French regent, in that manual of instruction she'd written for powerful women, had said, whatever you do, place yourself in the service of a lady who's well reading, who's well regarded, who is constant, and who has good judgment. Now, in those terms, Anne Boleyn could hardly have come into better hands. But Margaret of Austria had herself known an extraordinary series of female role models. She was just passing on what she'd learnt herself. It was like a kind of who's who of matriarchy. Her mother, the ruling Duchess of Burgundy, had died when Margaret was just a toddler, but she'd been sent off as a young child to France as the future bride for the French king. And in France, uh, she was there to be raised in the care of Anne de Beaujeu, this, you know, powerful mentor figure. That French marriage would actually never come to fruition. Margaret would be dumped for a bigger heiress, basically. The French king married the young Duchess of Brittany instead. But the failure of that French marriage itself paved the way for another contract, because Margaret was then married off by her father, Maximilian, to the son, the young Prince Juan, who was son of the famous Spanish rulers, Ferdinand and Isabella. So, of course, in Spain, Margaret of Austria would have access, would have access to another amazing female role model. You don't get much better than Isabella of Castile, do you? What I do like about Margaret, though, just a sort of, sorry, brief time out, parenthesis. One reason Margaret of Austria is one of my, is my favourite on the way to Spain to marry the young Prince Juan, uh, her ship almost foundered, almost went down in the Bay of Biscay. Everyone around her was terrified. But, they say, Margaret took time out to compose a mocking, rhyming epitaph for herself. Here lies Margaret, the willing bride, twice married, yet a virgin when she died. And anyone who can write that under those circumstances has my vote. That's great. So 
She reached Spain safely, uh, but that marriage too didn't last long. Prince Juan died, worn out, so they said, by his exertions with the hot-blooded Margaret. But the failure of that marriage paved the way for a third contract made by her family. She was married off to the young Duke of Savoy, uh, who was, and this was, you know, this was a successful marriage. It was a kind of love match. But the point about him, about the young Duke of Savoy, Philibert, was that he wasn't, he was a, was a pretty playboy, basically. I mean, effectively, uh, he left the business, she he left the business to Margaret and she told him not to worry his undeniably pretty head about it. And if ever you've seen the bust of him in one of the Berlin museums, you know it was a very pretty head, but not a very long lasting one. Guess what? He died too quickly. I know she really wasn't lucky in husbands, was she? Apparently Margaret had to be restrained from throwing herself out of the window. You do sort of feel that, you know, three marriages ending that far, you know, who can blame her? But her time in Savoy had let her exercise power directly. And now she was brought back by her family. Fortuitously, she was suddenly available at the moment when the Netherlands needed a regent because her brother, Margaret's brother, who'd been married to Juana of Spain, you know, the Juana the Mad, as history knows her, had suddenly died. And um, his and, and, and Juana's son, Charles, the nominal region, region, ruler of the Netherlands, was only a child, so Margaret took over as regent. By the time Anne Boleyn reached her court in 1513, Margaret was already some years into this regency, but more than that, she was at the absolute heart of European diplomacy. Even beyond her role as regent of the Netherlands for her nephew, the young Charles V as he'd become, she was, as her father-in-law Ferdinand of Aragon had said, the most, he said that Madame Margaret is the most important person in Christendom, since she acts as mediator in almost all the negotiations between the princes. So she really was at the heart of European diplomacy. Mm. And this was the world to which 1513 Anne Boleyn had come. Mm. Now, at the court, this court in the Netherlands, where Margaret of Austria met with her council every day, Anne Boleyn could have learned several lessons. One of them, of course, was to watch how a woman could exercise power. But there was another one, because the Netherlands, the old Burgundian court, was home to all the parade of pageantry and poetry that we call courtly love. And that great, you know, game of sexual role play that dominated Europe for centuries. And it's easy today to forget just what a big deal courtly love was. But C.S. Lewis, of course, we all know him as the author of the Narnia books, but an important medievalist, he wrote that courtly love was a movement compared to which the Renaissance was a mere ripple on the surface of literature. So bigger deal than the Renaissance by far. Mm. And Anne Boleyn would have seen this game too being played out. And I think this would be very important to her and to England's future. Mm. 
Mm. Anne Boleyn didn't stay long in the Netherlands simply because the experience of another European court would be coming her way. When, late in 1514, Henry VIII's younger sister, Mary Tudor, travelled to France to marry the old King Louis, Anne Boleyn was one of the ladies who came to her there and remained, remained there, moreover, long after Mary Tudor had danced her elderly husband into his grave, so they said, and returned to her own country. Claude, the new queen, the wife to the new king, Francois I, was herself an uncharismatic figure. But for all of that, Anne Boleyn would now be coming into the sphere of some very extraordinary ladies. First up was Le Savoy. Remember, the one who'd been raised, you know, in, she'd been raised in company with, uh, with Margaret of Austria by Anne de Beaujeu. Now, she was the mother of the new king. She had been just a mere poor relation of the French ruling family. But over the years, she'd seen her adored son, Francois, move closer and closer to the throne as French king after French king died without direct heir. Now, her son was on the throne. He was also a pleasure-loving young man who was happy to leave a lot of the business to his mother. So you see letter after letter, oh, you know, a Venetian envoy writing that Louise of Savoy lays claim to managing everything. A letter to Henry VIII, it is she who runs all, and so may she well, for I never saw a woman like to her, both for wit, honour and dignity. She hath a great stroke in all matters with the king, her son. There was a third member of this family group, so close they were known as the Trinity. There was Louise of Savoy and her son Francois, but there was also a daughter. Her daughter who we know as Marguerite of Navarre. And Marguerite had a huge influence at her brother's court, and I think probably also on the young Anne Boleyn. Now, Marguerite of Navarre was a complicated character. If I'm honest, before I wrote this book, she was the one to whom I expected to, to feel closest, to be most interested in. I mean, a published author, a woman of letters, a woman of great style. Mm -hmm. You think, you know, what's not to like? Mm -hmm. But in fact, she was, oh, the polite way of putting it is a character with a complicated emotional history. They called her the people's, she's been called a people's princess. Where have we heard that phrase before? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly she was so close to her brother that when she was finally, after many years, pregnant with a lot, you know, she wrote that she resented the baby in her womb because it might distract her from attention on her brother. I mean, some 19th century historians postulated that her relationship with Francois might be as incestuously close physically as it was emotionally. That's probably pushing it. But all the same, there's some, you know, there's some quite strange stuff going on there. However, she was a published author of this, you know, this fame, her most famous book is The Heptameron. She was uh, interested in very much discussing the questions of courtly love. But she was also a leader among the large group of noble ladies who were looking to reform the Catholic Church from within. 
it's reform with a small r we're talking about here. Anne Boleyn would of course come to be associated with what we think of as reform, the reformation, i.e. the actual break with, with, with Rome. But um, before that, before that became apparent that, you know, Luther and the Pope between them had started something that was going to tear Europe apart. There were just a lot of people, and particularly a lot of noble women, who wanted to, to do away with the abuses they saw in the Catholic Church, to promote even a more spiritual sort of Christianity, but who would nonetheless remain in the end loyal daughters of the Catholic Church. And Anne Boleyn may well have got her evangelical education in her years in France. But again, she'd have got another sort of education there as well, because, again, Marguerite of Navarre's, she wrote about courtly love, her writings, and boy did she leave a lot of writings, harp obsessively on the theme of sexual violence and of women wronged by men. It's possible she had herself suffered at the hands of one of her brother's gallants, a man called Bonivet. Um, more certainly, in the time that Anne Boleyn had spent with Margaret of Austria in the Netherlands, Margaret, you know, the powerful Margaret of Austria, had seen her own reputation suffer from advances made to her by one of Henry VIII's cronies, Charles Brandon. We know Charles Brandon later, of course, as the man who ran off with Mary Tudor. But before that, his relations with Margaret were the talk of Europe at one moment. So really, I mean, Anne de Beaujeu, in her manual for powerful women, had written, there is no man of worth, however noble he may be, who does not use treachery, nor to whom it does not seem good sport to deceive or trick women of rank. And Margaret of Austria, one of her verses, trust in those who offer you service, and in the end, my maidens, you will find yourselves in the rank of those who've been deceived. So really, that love was dangerous, that men could not be trusted, was an idea Anne Boleyn could hardly fail to carry home with her when she returned to England in the early 1520s. In 1522, Anne Boleyn appeared at the English court as an attendant on Catherine of Aragon. And of course, Catherine, as the daughter of Isabella of Castile, had herself been born and bred into a network of female authority. I mean, Isabella of Castile had, had you know, a handful of daughters. The eldest survivor, Juana, would uh, inherit her throne. The youngest, Catherine, would marry Henry VIII. But there were also two daughters who, in succession, were married to the same man, King Manuel of Portugal, who, when one after the other they died, then married one of their nieces. While the niece's own younger sister, yeah, quite, keep it, I mean, concentrate here. Well, <laughs> um, the niece's own younger sister was married to Manuel's heir. 
I mean, this kind of this kind of family tree is where the Habsburg got their lantern jaw, where I got my grey hairs, and I do also feel it must have affected Catherine of Aragon's attitude, don't you? Because when Henry VIII came to Catherine, would come, you know, later in the decade, to Catherine of Aragon, saying, you were married to my brother before, so I think our marriage is invalid. Surely she'd just have been like, yeah, and your point is, have you looked at my family? Anyway, that's by the by. Catherine of Aragon was already sister-in-law, of course, to Margaret of Austria through that time when Margaret of Austria had married the short-lived Spanish prince. And that connection, yeah, I know, this is it's a lot to keep in one's head, but that connection would very soon prove to be important. Because when Henry VIII was trying to get out of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, when the hearing at Blackfriars came, it would be Margaret of Austria who found advice, lawyers, for Catherine. Catherine of Aragon complained that no one in England dared help her and go up against the king. But Margaret of Austria sent her counsel, even though in those very same weeks, she was a major player in another drama going on the other side of the channel. In those same weeks, when at Blackfriars, the, the Pope's envoy was Cardinal Campeggio, was looking into the validity of the marriage between Henry and Catherine. On the other side of the channel, Margaret of Austria and her old playmate, Louise of Savoy, were sitting down to negotiate the so-called ladies' peace between the Habsburgs, between Margaret's nephew, Charles, and France, Louise's son, Francois. And I love the letters exchanged between them because they really are saying, look, the young men, I mean, they wrap it up very politely. They say that the young men, the kings will have their honor to consider. And, you know, but how easy for ladies, on the contrary, to come forward in such an undertaking. I mean, strip off the fancy language. And what they're basically saying is, if we can just keep the boys out of the way, we can get the business done. The breakdown of the marriage of Catherine and um, Henry, of course, is one of the most discussed subjects in British history. There were various elements in it. Obviously, Henry's desire for a son, the fact that his marriage to Catherine had produced only a daughter, Mary, was one element. Another was, of course, hugely, his personal interest in in Anne Boleyn. And that's where we can really see, if we look at the letters Henry wrote to Anne, we can really see the, the tropes of courtly love coming into play. I mean, he's writing about, you know, himself as the servant, her, you know, she is as the cruel mistress, you know, he's yearning, he's at her feet. I mean, he couldn't quite keep the posture of humility up, but all the same, this is seriously playing of court love. Question is, of course, what would happen after the play? Because if there were, th I think there were three elements. I mean, if you're going to write about a figure as, as much written, as well known as Anne Boleyn, you have to have a theory, and this is mine. I think there were three elements in this, this relationship, this love affair between Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. I think there was the personal 
you know, the infatuation. There was what you could call the progenitorial, Henry's desire for a son. But I'd say there's also a strong political element to this story. Because Anne Boleyn, she'd returned from her time in France. She'd so much taken the ways of that country to heart as to seem, Lancelot de Carle reported, an ambassador, you know, an envoy reported, like a native-born French woman. Indeed, the imperial ambassador, the Habsburg ambassador, Chapuis, was saying that it is on Anne who alone depends the favour the French now enjoy at the English court. When she accompanied Henry to, um, to Calais, there were even rumours that they would marry there and that King Francois, the King of France, would give the bride away. Didn't happen, of course, this was 1532, though it may have been there that you know, Henry and Anne's sexual relationship really started. But the point is, if Anne Boleyn on her way up was being treated almost as though she had actually been, she, she was playing the role almost of a, a French princess, if you like. But if it played a part in her rise, I'd say it also played a part in her fall. Because the stock, the status of Catherine of Aragon in England had always gone up or down um, according to the desirability or otherwise of an alliance with the Spanish Habsburgs that she represented. But Anne Boleyn, you know, had been on the way up when an alliance with France looked highly desirable. But when that situation began to change, at the same time, of course, as you know, Anne had also failed to give Henry the longed-for son, and perhaps at a time when he'd begun to find, you know, her, her games of courtly love a little less desirable in the wife than, than in the mistress. Then, in the early weeks of 1536, when Catherine of Aragon died, Fortuitously, at the same time, an alliance with, with France, which Anne represented, was looking less desirable. For much of Henry and Anne's brief marriage, it had been the wounded figure of Catherine of Aragon that stood in the way of a new Habsburg alliance. Because how could Henry VIII cozy up to the Emperor Charles while continuing to repudiate Charles's aunt? But when Catherine of Aragon was dead, then it was just the Frenchified figure of Anne and all those around her, those who supported her, who stood in the way of a French, of, um, of a Habsburg alliance. And did that play a part in her fall? fall? I'd argue that it did, probably. By the time Catherine of Aragon died, by the time Anne Boleyn knelt in the straw to wait for the executioner's sword, all the women who'd mentored them were themselves dead. I mean, Isabella of Castile and Anne de Beaujeu, of course, Louise of Savoy and Margaret of Austria also. Marguerite of Navarre would live on for some years, but her influence was fading away. But guess what? There was another generation of women ready to take up the story. Now, basically, in country after country across Europe, you could actually see that the first generation of powerful women were being succeeded by their descendants 
physical or moral. In the Netherlands, Margaret of Austria would be succeeded by her niece and a niece she'd helped raise, Mary of Hungary. Mary would be succeeded in the same job by her niece, Margaret of Parma. In England, of course, Mary Tudor um, would succeed, you know, would, would, would reign, um, Catherine of Aragon's daughter, and of course Anne Boleyn had also left her daughter of Elizabeth. Elizabeth. In France, meanwhile, uh, Louise of Savoy's daughter Marguerite of Navarre had herself given birth to a daughter, Jeanne, who would inherit her father's kingdom of Navarre. And between this next generation of women, again, you can see, I'll be brief, but you can see some very interesting connections. I mean, we all know about the connections, heaven knows, between Mary Tudor and her half-sister Elizabeth. And in time, of course, between Elizabeth and her kinswoman, Mary Stuart. But there were other connections there. Uh, Mary of Hungary, who of course, you know, was related to, to Mary Tudor, in the days when, when Mary Tudor had been in danger, when she'd been a Catholic, an obstinate Catholic during the reign of her Protestant brother, Edward, Mary of Hungary had actually had kept warships waiting off the English coast, ready to sweep Mary away to the continent if, if her life seemed in danger. In later years, uh, Elizabeth as Queen, Queen of England, would, uh, would strike up an alliance with, with Jeanne, Jeanne d'Albret, Jeanne, the Queen of Navarre, because Jeanne, unlike her mother, you know, who her mother Marguerite had remained a good daughter of the Catholic Church, despite her impulses towards reform. By contrast, Jeanne would publicly declare herself for the reformed faith, you know, for the, for, for the real, not even just Luther's Reformation, but the real Calvinist Reformation coming out of Switzerland. Now that made her and Elizabeth of England natural allies, two Protestant queens, in uh, you know in a Catholic Europe but it also of course put her at war with the other woman who was becoming very powerful in what you might call the French the French sphere of influence Catherine de Medici mm -hmm. so by the middle of the middle moving towards the sort of you know the second third let's say of the 16th century again you've got a lot of powerful women You've got, in England, for the first time ever, one reigning queen, Elizabeth, following another, Mary. You'd had in Scotland, Mary of Guise, uh, running the country on behalf of her little daughter, Mary, Queen of Scots. But in France, Catherine de' Medici, for a lot of her life, had been just a sort of disregarded wife. But when her husband, King Henry, King Henry was killed in a jousting accident, Catherine would become increasingly powerful of three successive young French kings. Now, Catherine and Jeanne d'Albret, they were two queens. I mean, Mary, Queen of Scots, wrote first to Mary Tudor, then to Elizabeth Tudor, that they were two, two queens in one, in one aisle. Well, really, Catherine de Medici and Jeanne d'Albret were two queens in, in the same landmass, if you like. And although we, it's not quite the way we think of her, but the fact is, 
Catherine de' Medici was by no means a religious bigot that we imagine. Her own instinct seems actually to have been a kind of pragmatic moderation in matters of religion. As the French, as the Counter-Reformation got underway, as the French wars of religion began to tear that country apart, certainly you can see her act actually protecting Jeanne d'Albret when the Pope summoned Jeanne to Rome to answer to the Inquisition. Catherine de' Medici said, you know, you're not taking her out of my country, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. All the same, this wouldn't last. Basically, in the climate of the later years of the 16th century, the climate of the, count of the, the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, tolerance wasn't going to win the day. And this, I'd say, is what began to break up the alliances between the women. I mean, when, after, after years of armed conflict, Catherine de' Medici and Jeanne d'Albray got together again, summer of 1572, they were meant to be preparing for the marriage of Jeanne's son to Catherine's daughter that would calm everything down, that would end the religious wars. And, oh, there's some lovely letters written then. I love it. Jeanne d'Albray is writing back to her son, her son in Navarre, Henry, saying he has to come to the French court, you know, but he'll find it a terrible place because there it's not the men who pursue the women, it's the women who pursue the men. But all the same, he has to make a good impression. So she writes, Try to train your hair to stand on end and be certain there are no lice in it. <laughs> and the other thing I love is that Jeanne d'Albray and Catherine de' Medici took time out from the negotiations to go shopping together around the boutiques of Paris disguised as simple bourgeois housewives. Love that. But the fun side didn't last. Jeanne d'Albray died suddenly before the wedding could take place almost certainly tuberculosis, but of course it's been said she was you know, given a pair of poisoned gloves by Catherine. And this wedding, instead of quieting religious tensions, instead it proved the trigger for the appalling violence of the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day. And we all know about that. I mean, it began as the attempted assassination of a single man, the French Protestant Huguenot leader, Admiral Coligny. Mm -hmm. It spiralled into violence, Catholic violence against the Huguenots, against the French Protestants, which saw it, it spread through Paris, it spread through France, it lasted for weeks on end and saw many thousands killed. And I mean, there are appalling stories, you know, baskets of babies flung into the Seine, a woman in the act of giving birth thrown out of the window and her hands hacked off for the sake of the bracelets on her wrists, you know, appalling stories. It was one of those days which literally do change history. You know, from there, there really couldn't be any going back in a way. And I wonder if it was then that the age of queens, the 16th century age of queens ended, or whether that happened 15 years later, when on the orders of her kinswoman, Elizabeth I, Mary Queen of Scots was executed at Fotheringay. I mean, you think of the sort of sisterhood, if you like, of the earlier part of the century. Well, you can't get much, much less sisterly than Fotheringay, can you, really? And yet, you know, did Elizabeth have a choice? No. 
it does seem as if the religious strife, and I think that's what it was, did put an end to the age of queens. When, the, when Elizabeth I was died, when she died in 1603, she was standing virtually alone. I mean, there had at times, ironically, most of the people expected to succeed her had themselves been women. But there were rumours, there was talk that you know, it was felt much to have yet another queen in England, that England was getting tired of queens. And of course, Elizabeth would be succeeded instead by her male kinsman, James. And then look what a fist the Stuarts made of it. But you know, <laughs> that's another story. And in the 17th century, of course, the most famous ru female ruler, Christina of Sweden, would give up her throne, saying that no woman was fit to hold one. The age of queens, I like to think that an example of female power like that never really goes away, however. Mm. Perhaps it would be reborn in Russia in the 18th century, a very different world, but I do feel also that it has echoes for our own day. That is the other reason that I'd wanted to write this book, because in a sense, well, okay, the American election last year didn't go as many of us thought or hoped it would do. But nonetheless, we are seeing a lot of powerful women at the moment. We are seeing women's power discussed in a way it hasn't been for, until just recently, yeah. not at least since the 16th century. I like to think this great game of queens has still some moves to play. Mm. Thank you. I love that.